Welcome to Fellow Fellow, a new podcast from Harvard Kennedy School's Technology and Public Purpose Project. I'm your host, Mark Lerner, and I'm a fellow at the Tech Project. In this podcast, I interview my fellow fellows about their research and perspectives on some of the most interesting challenges at the intersection of technology and society. Welcome to another episode of Fellow Fellow. Happy to be here with fellow of mine, Devin Gladden. Uh, Devin is, of course, a fellow fellow at the Technology and Public Purpose Project. He's also an energy, technology, and transportation policy professional who has worked on a variety of climate change and international issues. Currently in his role at the AAA National as a manager for federal energy and technology policy, he covers a range of vehicle-related issues, including gas prices, deployment of electric vehicles, and safety policy for self-driving cars. Prior to his current role, Devin served as a special advisor for the Office of Electricity and Energy Reliability at the Department of Energy uh, during the Obama administration. He's also worked at NASA, the World Bank, and the state of Delaware, and he holds a master's in environmental policy and regulation from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Devin, it's great to uh, be able to chat with you today. Thanks, Mark. It's great to chat with you, too. Uh, I'd love to jump right into talking about your research and your project here. I mean, your your uh, history certainly aligns you very well with all the things that you're researching here on automated vehicles. But could you maybe give us an introduction to your research here, the TAP project? Absolutely, Mark. So uh, before I started at AAA in uh, 2017, um, I didn't know a whole lot about automated vehicles. And for me, it was a, a, a really uh, great beginning because at that time you saw that the industry doing a lot of research, a lot of collaboration um, that we still see and that's continuing on today. And so really for me, um, bringing in the insight I had gained from my previous energy and technology and climate change experience was a, a great lens to add to the the understanding and widening understanding of how autonomous vehicles might be deployed in society. Mm-hmm. And so for my research, I've always been really fascinated by how public opinion will shape perception of uh, the use cases for these vehicles and ultimately help consumers determine whether or not it, it's a right fit for them. Mm-hmm. And for me, that fits into a wider notion of where we see mobility moving, not only in this country, but across the globe, where um, you see a variety of companies, of state and, and city and local departments, all providing transportation services and understanding that um, there are more than one, uh, more than two ways <laughs> uh, for people to get to their destination. And so being able to offer a variety of choices, whether it's an autonomous vehicle one day in the future, or it's biking, or it's a traditional car, or, uh, you know, you're using a ride hailing service to, to call a vehicle for you. I think we're starting to see more of those trends develop. And in the future, we'll see more of those options available for consumers. Gotcha. And I know that you mentioned this a little bit, but how did you get personally to the point of wanting to look into automated vehicles, self-driving cars, and, and the automotive industry as a whole? 
Well, for me, um, because I've always been really interested in climate change and understanding the different opportunities to mitigate and adapt, for me, the transportation sector has always been an important case study because it is the largest emitting sector, not only in the country, but across the globe. Um, And then when you look at the role of light duty vehicles in uh, the transportation sector and its emissions, they contribute a, a heavy and large chunk. And so I'm very much interested in how driving habits and behaviors may change if we introduce more and more robocars that ultimately would add to the road users. Um, and mm-hmm. they, they will have a contribution as well to the transportation emissions profile of this country. Um, and so for me, understanding, you know, as new modes of transportation come online, how are the technologies being managed um, so that we do see the projected, you know, not only safety benefits, but hopefully we will also see emissions reductions from the use of uh, greater electric vehicles as AVs, but uh, they don't necessarily have to be electric. And so um, that's another reason why folks who are interested in autonomous vehicles are understanding what their emissions profile will look like, particularly Mm -hmm. as um, adoption patterns uh, evolve over time. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you can say about that now, about automated vehicles versus electric vehicles, and how, if these things were to start coming into play more and more in our modes of transportation, how would that affect emissions? How would that affect pollution or, or any other measurements that we use to uh, to track these sorts of things? Well, it, it will largely depend on how people use the vehicles. If mm-hmm. they are used mm-hmm. very frequently and they are gas powered, then you could see an increase in emissions. And, and, and that's also to say that even if they are electric, and all electricity is not clean and, you know, just depends on uh, the time of day and mm-hmm. uh, the renewable portfolio standard for your state. So in some ways, you know, there are many factors that we would need to consider. But, you know, I, I would liken it to any analysis that an ordinary car driver would do to understand their emissions profile. That would be the same for someone who uses autonomous vehicles. I see. Okay. And so maybe it would be helpful at this point if you could help me understand or maybe paint a picture of where are we right now with regards to deployment of automated vehicles and electric vehicles. You know, I myself, I used to live in Silicon Valley where I would see them driving around very frequently as as it being a test bed for a lot of these sorts of things. But, you know, that's been going on for years now, and yet we still don't really have anything that's as widely available as needed are we seeing in, in the near future deployment? Are we seeing in the near future deployment in particular sectors um, or particular countries maybe? What does that look like? Well, I think what you're seeing is that uh, there has been a mismatched approach to testing and deployment across the country. So if mm. you look at dense uh, urban areas, there certainly has been more testing than in rural communities. Um, and I think you know, that that's partially because of how the technology has developed. It's been a lot more challenging than engineers, I think, initially understood the challenge to be for these vehicles, not only, you know, from a a technology, hardware, software development standpoint, but also Mm -hmm. having to 
incorporate autonomous vehicles into the wider network of road users. So that's pedestrians, other drivers, bikers, motorcyclists. And so as a part of that sort of integration of AVs into that wider network, engineers have encountered that there are going to be additional challenges because there's just so much unpredictability in the transportation network because of all the different road users. And so I think over the next few years, you're going to continue seeing pilot programs increase. And honestly, they'll likely continue to to be focused on urban and dense areas, but you certainly are seeing different applications for like shuttles or delivery vehicles um, Mm -hmm. that could certainly have wider testing patterns and that could certainly be in more rural areas. And I think we'll see that in the years to come. That also does not put a fine point on where we are uh, with commercial deployment of, of these vehicles for long distance deliveries. Absolutely. Uh, And so um, I certainly think that over the coming years, you're going to see more pilots and more demonstrations that certainly will put uh, our highways uh, under a new lens as we look at the the use of these vehicles and, and their integration with other road users. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned, and I know from our previous discussions just as fellows, that a lot of what you're looking into right now is public opinion on the use of automated vehicles and what are people thinking about this how do they feel about having these vehicles on the roads with them or being inside these vehicles could you maybe give me an overview of what questions you've been asking and what you've been finding certainly so for my particular research i've really wanted to hone in on public understanding of the pilot programs so to what extent Folks are even aware that their state or city might be engaged in this kind of testing. How do they Mm -hmm. feel about the testing and and what's their perception of the testing? Because in some ways, the other road users, their perceptions of the vehicles as they're deployed will be critical in, in shaping the understanding of the vehicle's capabilities and limitations. And so it's critical that other road users have a baseline understanding of these vehicles so that then when they encounter them on the road, there's an understanding of how to engage with the vehicle rather than, you know, as a lot of the previous research today has found that a lot of road users are uh, very afraid of these vehicles. And certainly the someone's first time interacting with it could be on a highway. And if they're afraid of it, that could certainly contribute to an already dangerous situation. And so for the the particular survey results that I undertook, you know, one thing that uh, we found that was really interesting was that only about a third of U.S. drivers were aware that some states are actually running pilot programs. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So there's still, from a policymaker standpoint, there's still a major education gap. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we see over the coming years, as these pilot programs continue to grow, as we see more demonstrations, you know, in particular, when we look at, you know, major company announcements by uh, Lyft, for example, you know, over the next two years, they're by 2023 planning to deploy uh, robo taxis throughout their Lyft network in various cities. This will be a critical point to make sure that when you see more of these pilot programs being developed and deployed. There should be a heavy consumer education piece and not just uh, letting people know that, hey, there's a pilot program, but 
what's the safety record of the vehicles? What are the basic function? What's the functionality of the vehicles? Do they look mm-hmm. different? Um, how are they behaving? Where, like, it, you know, there mm-hmm. should be some critical details provided to the public so that if in an event that they do encounter these vehicles, it's not their first time and they, they don't get nervous or scared or, you know, just in an otherwise tense moment that can contribute to an already risky situation like driving. Yeah. Are there guidelines out there already that sort of outline what we should be educating the public on? Like, what are the important pieces? Because on one hand, I can imagine, you know, more education is better. But at the same time, there's a lot of technical details that would just be too much for people to get into. Well, we, the the thing is you have to, industry has to work with safety regulators to strike that important balance. Because Mm -hmm. right now, no, there's no federally mandated guidelines for uh, how to educate the public on this. Um, And actually that's been a major criticism of the regulatory approach to date, which has been more hands-off uh, in the name of innovation. Mm-hmm. But as we understand, you know, new technologies, certainly in their infancy, you're dealing with a twofold challenge of not only acceptance from the public for use of the technology, but also the state of development. You know, I, I, I'm i an 80s kid. I remember having to blow into the Super Nintendo uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh, cartridges because they didn't work all the time. And, and, and so, you know, I think most people would understand new technologies often fail. And so there, you know, that there needs to be some understanding of, you know, how uh, the vehicle will uh, respond and how people should interact with it when it does fail. Mm-hmm. And those and those sorts of use cases, you know, there's certainly, we, we see the stories in the media and we see them on social media, um, but in some ways there needs to be a more concentrated effort on the critical topics that regulators and industry really believes that all road users need to have in order to interact safely with these vehicles. Yeah. And you mentioned one of the the heaviest criticisms is that regulators are just too hands-off. And the question that that immediately brings to mind for me is, who are the main influencers in the AV space right now? Is it private investment firms? Is it the engineers themselves that are building out these systems? Is it, as you've sort of been looking into your research, public opinion? Well, you know, I think right now, because there is such a race to prove that this technology can be deployed safely in a variety of of driving settings, Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the conversation is still being driven very much by industry. And that's very much um, not only the AV developers, but also the investors. And so I think we're at a a really critical juncture because, you know, there, it it seems like almost every day there's some, you know, new, another multi-million dollar round of investments. And that will only increase the pressure to make sure that there's going to be a return on that investment. And in that haste, Uh, This is where regulators need to play a more critical oversight role to make sure that as these new technologies are being, you know, put on the roads and that we really are pushing the limits of what um, even artificial intelligence um, capabilities are, you know, we need to make sure that those 
technologies are safe and that people on the road are not put in greater danger because of them. Mm-hmm. And that's where regulators have to be able to, to, to step in and say, okay, we understand that this is new. The public is accepting some part of this risk. Um, you know, and it's interesting because I, I do think this is also a part of the larger liability insurance question. Right. Which is massive. Yeah, because I do think, you know, I'll be honest, I think states that are looking to make uh, their AV industry more attractive for testing and deployment, I actually think they should consider placing sole liability on the AV testing company so it would be waived for road users in a, during mm-hmm. this interim period, as we during this testing period in particular, um, just to give people a sense of confidence in the technology and help and it helps to to put trust too because in some ways if a company is unable to to really give the motoring public a sense of confidence in their technology they shouldn't be testing on public roads anyway that's a great point now as we talk about the evolution of the technology as well as the evolution of public perception on it do you have a sense given that you've been looking into this for a while now of where we are on the sort of timeline of adoption. Are we moving at a breakneck pace towards, you know, a five-year time frame? Is this a more of a 50-year time frame? Or what are maybe some of the milestones that you think we need to hit before we really start seeing these things taking up our streets? So I, I think we are still very early in the deployment of these vehicles. As I noted before, I think uh, right now industry is still being very much driven by the development of the technology um, and the investments in the technology to to actually make it work. Um, so that puts us, for me, that puts us at the lower end of the timeline. So I do think over the next two to five years, um, you're going to continue seeing more pilot programs, more deployments and more fleet applications, which will be, I think that will be the first critical milestone, I think, is that once you see these vehicles used in a a Lyft and Uber context, then that will increase deployment. Um, And then really it will be up to consumers because if, you know, you'll have a twofold challenge. So not only will people need to feel safe in the vehicle, they will need to make sure that the vehicle feels like another confident road user. And we know how dangerous driving can be. And, and in some ways, that will be the true test when these vehicles are on the road, whether or not we see their long-term deployment or if they end up just being a short-term innovation that cause more headaches than solve problems. I guess only time will tell at this point. Devin, I've got so many more questions for you, but before we get to those, let's go ahead and take a quick break and we'll come back to get into some bigger topics. Perfect. Thanks, Mark. If you're interested in connecting with Devin about his work, you can email him at devingladden at gmail.com. That's D-E-V-I-N-G-L-A-D-D-E-N at gmail.com. 
and we're back with a conversation with Devin Gladden all about the, uh, well, broadly, the future of transportation in a way, but more specifically, automated vehicles, electric vehicles. And Devin, it's it's impossible to talk about transportation in the future of it without talking about climate change and how the new development of technology is you know, particularly going to affect climate change and, and emissions, as you've already brought up. And I'd like to start maybe with just, you know, drawing a, a link and a connection between all of the automated vehicle technology, which we've been talking about, to the electric vehicle technology, which we haven't been mentioning so much, but has definitely seen a lot more deployment in the public, right? We see a lot more purely electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles out on the road right now. Do you see these as two distinct but parallel paths of technology development, or are there more linkages than what we might see as, as private citizens? So, Mark, I think, you know, just taking a step back, as we look at the use of autonomous vehicles, it might be helpful for people to think of them as as smartphones on wheels. And so, <laughs> I like uh, that. yeah, they're, they're, I mean, th- these are, you know, very smart devices that are going to have all sorts of apps that give you information, entertainment, all sorts mm-hmm. of new things are going to be opened up to you while you're riding in an autonomous vehicle. Now, the when you look at energy consumption, the research on this is, is still very early, um, but it looks like these devices are going to be, these vehicles, excuse me, are going to have many devices that are energy intensive. So all mm-hmm. the sensors and radars, uh, the LIDAR, I mean, all of the, those devices that are going to help the vehicle participate in driving and as a road user, mm-hmm. um, are, they're, they're very energy intensive. And so I've been a part of discussions around whether or not you could end up with sort of the first generation of AVs being both gas powered and electric powered because of the not only intense electric needs, um, but also the the current state of battery technology may not actually make it feasible for one battery to power both the propulsion system and all the devices in oh, the vehicle. Wow. So, so we we're in. A, it's just interesting. This is one of the engineering challenges that I find really fascinating. Is you know, um, as we work to make these vehicles more safe, how can we do that in the most energy efficient way possible? And how does that necessarily conflict with some of the? I'll be honest with the automaker motivations to make money, right? Sure. I mean, these are going to be certain. If you think about it particularly in how vehicle services have been playing out recently. Automakers want to be able to sell you things in cars, or you think about the advertising opportunities and marketing Mm. potential that, you know, Lyft can now offer sponsors because of the, the, just they have a captive audience in this vehicle now. So Mm -hmm. I say all of that to say that, you know, in, in some ways, it's not the electric future for autonomous vehicles is not guaranteed. And I think there has to be uh, a concerted regulatory effort that as, you know, with any mobility option, it's the carbon management uh, of it will be important. And so I think that's where when you look at the development of automated vehicles versus electric vehicles, it will be different. 
and they, those are uh, completely different markets. Um, the technology may be connected and there might be linkages, particularly as you see, you know, automakers starting to acquire more and more uh, AV developers and they're merging their engineering teams. Um, and you could see more and more of that development happening. But I do think it's important to think of autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles as separate. Um, and uh, yeah, and the electric vehicle market, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about that in more depth because that's a, a whole beast in and of itself, particularly related to climate change. No kidding. Now, the electric vehicle market, it has had more regulation. It's been around for longer. As I said, we've had more of these things out on the road. Do you view the challenges in the electric vehicle market and in the space in a similar light, you know, insofar as public adoption, public perception, technology development, um, insufficient regulation? Basically, are the challenges in a way parallel to what we're seeing with the which with what you've already described with the automated vehicle space or are we in a totally different space with the challenges of the electrical vehicle market? There, there are certainly similarities, um, but the regulatory market uh, is much different. Mm. One, for one, uh, electric vehicles, um, you know, we, we still have to get a real handle on how, because they use electricity for fuel, how we're pricing that into the paying for transportation, just like gas-powered vehicles use the uh, a gallon of gas and there's a gas tax associated with it in a regulatory market for electric vehicles we've seen this approach differently in different states so some states have attached a uh a, just a mandatory electric vehicle fee other states are experimenting with a road usage charge that could be applied to any vehicle regardless of its fuel source and so, you know, as we see more of those kinds of challenges, because you it just, just you, you have to think about the regulatory scheme differently for these vehicles, we'll see more of those issues emerge. Another critical area on the regulatory front for electric vehicles is also looking at the state of uh, electric battery technology. And so uh, from a safety perspective, there still are police departments, fire departments that are just that lack an understanding or the, uh, the knowledge or the, the capability to respond to uh, an EV fire, which is much different than a fire for a gas-powered vehicle. Oh, interesting. And so th- that's another regulatory area where we need to make sure that m- more than anything, we need to make sure that our state and local officials understand the differences between um, the two technologies and that they can respond to each one appropriately and and make sure Mm -hmm. everyone is safe as possible. I see. Now, we've already seen, at least in the U.S. here, um, you know, more and more uh, of the government, and in particular, I'm thinking of the Biden administration saying that they're going to really move the uh, federal fleet towards electric vehicles. We've seen more interest and investment in the electric space. Do you feel like that's matching the pace that it needs to, to address the climate change concerns that the transportation industry puts uh, on our planet? You know, I I think we're, we're struggling with adoption on this point. And, you know, the U S is in a unique position because on one hand, 
you know, we do have strong political will for the deployment of these vehicles. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you still got a consumer base that quite honestly is not seen as the forward leaning EV market. So U.S. drivers, you know, uh, are about third in the market. We're behind China and Europe. And so so that means that uh, quite honestly, our ability to influence the market will be limited by uh, our ability to to pay and put up money because in some ways because we are sort of third uh, and quite honestly we're still lumped in with north america so that also includes canada and mexico where, where ev opportunities for the market may be much more on the horizon than in the u.s that really does put a greater need on the need to put on to to build more electric vehicle charging stations to work to make sure that mm-hmm. there are federal and state incentives for the purchase of these vehicles and and that we're working with automakers to, to secure the supply chain because the other thing is even if you have the money to buy one doesn't mean you're going to be able to get one particularly um, given right. all of the different you know supply chain challenges that the automotive industry is facing not only related to batteries but also computer chips you know and you have to remember mm-hmm. you know these vehicles the newer vehicles are more advanced than ever that means that they are more like smartphones than ever before and the the complexity of the technology the advanced state of the technology only makes us more vulnerable because those minerals and resources are uh, limited in supply you know and so that's yet another reason why the vehicles still remain expensive. And, and I'll be honest, I think that's that's probably a, a, a whole industry concern that is here to remain for a while until, until we see greater uh, use of EVs in the secondary market. So when people start buying used cars mm-hmm. and even then, you know, you know, the, the most advanced state and federal policies, they might want to consider how can we get incentives for for people who are buying cars, EVs used, you know, and that, that helps with deployment as right. well. And so we have to, I think we're at this really critical moment where we have to think expansively about what the actual market is, given that, you know, fleet turnover can be a very, very long endeavor in this, this country. So if cars are, are yeah. you know, lasting on the roads for 15, 20 years, um, we have to plan for that. And and I think that that is going to be a really big challenge for climate change because that ultimately will mean that we may not be driving down emissions as fast as, as we would like or need to. Right. So I know that one of the things that connects you and I amongst the other fellows is that we both can become pessimistic or cynical about some of the things that are coming you know, in our future. But to try and be an optimist in this moment, when you look five years or 10 years into the future, what is the optimistic view of deployment of EVs? What are the ways in which we can actually get electric vehicles out into the hands of people? And do you start seeing you know, more uh, uh, traditional vehicles, as you called them, coming off of the road? Or what's, what's you know, in that time horizon, what's the future that we could possibly envision? Well, I think this is where uh, the future of AVs and EVs will meet, because mm-hmm. I, I personally believe that if we can get 
safety policy and the technology right uh, on AVs, and we can ensure that they're the most efficient power vehicles on the roads ever. Um, I think if you see more of them being used in their electric in the fleet context, particularly for ride sharing, I think that could be revolutionary because I think there are a whole lot of people, even if they own a a gas power car, I think if they had a, a, a cheap electric option like an AV, I do think that they uh, might choose to switch some of those trips uh, away from from driving their own car. I also think for people in dense urban areas, hopping in an AV is a Mm no-brainer. And so I I think if if we get that right, we could see a, a really dramatic reduction in emissions over time. But I also think we have the the challenge that the pendulum could swing the other way and you could see emissions spike um, because of usage, because of the state of technology. And so, you know, this is where, um, this is why I like to focus on the the role of public opinion and perception. Yeah. Because because at the end of the day, it all comes down to the public Um, on all of these questions on, you know, whether you your next car is an electric vehicle, whether you know you you're, you decide to rent an electric vehicle to do your right. road trip, you know all of that will be a conscious decision that consumers will have to make. And I think yeah. you know I think you know climate change certainly has given people an additional critical issue to think about as they make these decisions. But I, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I think that it will take more time for climate change to be the guiding principle on a whole range of fronts because we're just, we're just not there yet. Right. It seems like it's more of a guiding principle from the regulatory and policy standpoint than it is on the public perception and market shaping standpoint. Is that about right? I I would say that, yeah, about now. And honestly, the regulatory policy development is new, hasn't always been that way. And it's not always guaranteed to be there either. Gotcha. And are there any differences that are worth calling out about rural versus urban perceptions on electric vehicles, and maybe in particular with how they're going to affect climate change or, or you know, in general, the usage of, of these vehicles or the desire to have these vehicles from those two different perspectives? Absolutely. I think you have to first start with the different use cases in an urban versus rural context. I mean, and it's not just electric vehicles. There are just different commuting and transportation patterns and habits. And mm-hmm. so it's more about making sure that the technology fits those needs and patterns as opposed to trying to shoehorn the technology into something that doesn't make sense. So I look at, for example, charging in rural communities. It will You will need public and private infrastructure to make that happen, you know, but, but in the rural community, they're probably more uniquely advantaged to have personal home chargers as opposed to in a densely urban area where you might have a bunch of apartment buildings it's like okay well where do you where do you put the chargers then and and how do you have enough uh uh, charge going that you can actually you know charge all the vehicles that might be in the multiple households in one apartment building so there Mm -hmm. so so those are unique 
policy and planning challenges that communities are really going to have to grapple with and, and, and recognize that there's no one size fits all solution for this. Every community will have to have its own charging and infrastructure plan. And we should encourage that to really give people a, a greater sense of ownership of, of their use of this technology and that it allows them to fit in their lives in, into to what's possible. I think right now yeah. for electric vehicles, I think a lot of people struggle because charging uh, looks differently, uh, especially if they can't install a home charger, then that, 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 that really does put a, a, a different weight on you than if you could just pull up at your local gas station. It's a much mm-hmm. different calculus. Um, it's not impossible, but you know, Americans uh, and humans generally are just creatures of habit. So if you, you know, say you're, you know, 45 or 50, you've been, you know, you maybe have bought two or three vehicles in your lifetime, you know, you're, you're used to dealing with gas. And so now having to re- refigure that out, you know, is easier in some contexts than others. Right, right. That's fascinating. So, you know, when it comes to this idea of shifting public opinion it seems like the infrastructure piece in particular is, is a massive one, but I want to, uh, you know, give you a magic wand, let's say, and you can change, you can wave it and change one thing. What would you change to sway public opinion? What do you think is going to be or would be the most effective thing that would move the public towards a more electric vehicle friendly position? Honestly, I think if you can show people that, Compared to the other uh, driving technologies they use, if EVs are proven to be the most efficient, the cheapest, the cleanest, and the safest, I think it's really hard for people to to make the argument that they shouldn't drive one. Because I think the the thing that that really continues to hold people up is charging and and the cost. Because you know, as uh, AAA uh, has done work in the past on the the cure for EV complacency is ownership. Once you actually own a vehicle, uh, then you see it's not as scary or foreign or just, it's, it's not, it, it's much easier to grasp and handle mm-hmm. once you're doing it. Gotcha. Well, I hope that we uh, can find a magic wand and get it into your hands someday soon. Um, Devin, I want to give you an opportunity. Are there any final thoughts or any things that you want to leave the listeners with? I do. You know, for anyone who's listening and you're thinking about purchasing your next vehicle or leasing, you know, or or buying a used car, anybody who's in the the market in 2021 to buy a car uh, or to own or to lease, I really want them to think about how might they make that switch to an electric vehicle because each of those consumer decisions are ultimately going to help our country drive down emissions. And so if people are not willing to make the switch, how else are we going to reduce emissions in this market? Mm -hmm. Well, you have personally swayed my next purchase, that's for sure. Devin, it's been such a good conversation and it's so great to be able to chat with you today. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you, Mark. This has been a great conversation. Likewise.
Fellow Fellow is a podcast produced at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center as part of the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Music is by Zach Pfeiffer, artwork by Z Wang. I'm your host, Mark Lerner. Join us next time as we talk to the other fellows about the problems they're tackling. Thanks for listening.